0: Good morning. My name is Peter. I want to introduce our storyteller for the day. Uh, She uh, is Nikki, and uh, she's a doctor, and more importantly, she's a runner. And uh, most important of all, she's got the baby with the best fat to cute ratio. So Nikki, come on up and tell us your story. (laughs)
1: Thanks Peter. Um, So when Peter first asked me to come up and share um, my first inclination of course was to say no Um, and partly because I've actually I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who shared their stories already and I've been so blessed by so many of the stories and especially uh, the members of the congregation who are more senior or retired. Um, I just really love seeing the perspective that comes with age and being able to see um, your stories of going through hard things and coming full circle and seeing what God has done. And so I felt very inadequate to share, um, but I just pray that the words I speak can somehow be a blessing and encouragement to you. So um, Peter asked me to share about um, a story of how how I've learned humility in my life. And so I thought, well, the short version is this, um, humility... It uh, comes from uh, having more, one more kid than you think you can handle. <laughs> um, but the slightly longer version is this. Um, so I grew up in a very close-knit family. Um, I'm the second of four girls. And my parents emigrated uh, from the Philippines when they were in the early 20s. My dad came to graduate school at MIT for chemical engineering. And my mom came as a pediatric nurse. And they met in Chicago, uh, where we grew up. Um, And my parents were really loving and supportive. We were a very close family, we still are, Um, but they definitely instilled values of hard work and success and achievement. So I grew up very close, especially to my dad, Um, and we shared a lot in common. We were were very different people, but um, we had several traits in common. Uh, Among them, a love of classical music and playing the violin, um, an inability to say no to dessert, Uh, A craving for order and systems and efficiency, um, and a strong drive for achievement. Um, So I went to college at UW, um, and that's where Jeff and I met, and then we got married when I was in medical school in Portland, and then came back to Seattle uh, to be close to family for my residency um, in in internal medicine. Um, And then afterwards, I joined UW faculty, where um, I was and am still working my kind of ideal job with immigrants and refugees. Um, And so, you know, a few years ago, life was feeling pretty smooth. It was very orderly. Um, Jeff and I were living with our three girls in our dream house. It was just the right size for our family of five. Um, And best of all, we got to see my parents every week. So my parents, when we said we were having our first baby, their first grandchild, they immediately retired, um, and then they started coming up, and they they drive from Olympia and live at our house for two or three days of the week, watch the kids while I work part-time, and then drove back down, and they did that for over six years, um, which was a huge blessing to, to the kids and then also to us, just to have them around. Uh, my youngest, you know, a couple years ago was two, and I, I felt like finally my life was coming back together. I was emerging from that. Stage of babyhood, I was finding my own hobbies again. I um, joined Marathon's Maniacs Club and um, had a race calendar. I was playing tennis again, and just things felt very smooth and under control. Um, Then in February of uh, 2015, I dropped my parents off at the airport for one of their world adventures. They were um, going to India. Um, And on the last day of the trip, um, my dad, so the tour. They were on a tour group like they always are. The tour had dispersed. They stayed an extra day. Um, and my dad uh, just collapsed on the street and um, died of what, we, sorry, of what we assume was a major heart attack, um, leaving my mom totally alone in India and uh, us on the other side of the world. And he was um, 68, so total surprise. And, uh, yeah, so our family, it took a while. I mean, we're still... Recovering, but um, so in the middle of recovering from all that, there were a lot of other curveballs in life. So, my youngest sister, who was pregnant when my dad died, um, she delivered her baby who had special needs and then needed immediate heart surgery um, in the NICU when he was born. And then for us, um, the major curveball was our, our bonus baby, um, so Levi. Um, and that pregnancy was really complicated, um, seven months of, of daily um, sickness and joint issues that made it difficult to walk. Um, and that was hard, too, because I had always prided myself in being one of the healthy people, you know, a, a healthy person. And um, so it was very different to, to have that not be the case. Um, so then arrived our sweet boy, um, Levi Edward, who's named after my dad. Um, And though he's been a super bright light, um, it was still a very dark time. Um, It was a lot of transition. Uh, Anna was in second grade, but Tess started kindergarten. Uh, Miri started preschool all in the same week that he was born. And life was just very chaotic. Um, I was still grieving my dad. um, And then add in sleep deprivation and just the inability to run, which had always been my uh, stress reliever. And life just felt like it was kind of falling apart. Um, and so it was in that time that I kind of realized how much of my identity was really wrapped up in um, who I was as a, feeling like a competent uh, person, a competent mom and doctor, and how people viewed me. Um, so that's where I'd love to be able to now wrap it up and give you a neat, uh, ra- nicely wrapped up ending to the story. But um, I really I can't. I feel like I'm in the middle of the story still. Um, I wish I could say all of those challenges, you know, I overcame and now I'm a better person, but um, you know, by God's grace, this is the middle and maybe one day I will, but in thinking about humility, it made me realize even if that were the case, I would be missing the point in saying, now I am a better person or I've grown so much because really it's not about me. Um, It's about the works of God being displayed Um, and, I'd been thinking, you know, if I just work harder and got everything orderly and my life were perfect again, um, then God could be glorified. And I realized that was just really vanity. That's me wanting everyone to look at me and say, oh, wow, she's really got it together. You know, she's, she's doing it. She's living the dream. Um, but instead, I just, uh, I, I'm just i learning to pray that God would be glorified in my brokenness and in the daily life. And so, so that's my daily prayer now, is God uh, be glorified in this mess. So, <laughs> sorry. Let me. All right. So this morning, our scripture reading is from the book of John. Uh, please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from John chapter nine, selected verses in the New American Standard Bible. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Uh, Jesus answered, it was neither uh, neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And God said, for judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind." Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. The word of the Lord.
0: Thank you for sharing that story. Oh, man, just love that. I'd like to... uh, give you guys a little bonus story. Uh, somebody that's been with us uh, for years his Robin, and this is our last Sunday today. Next oh, next week? Okay, one more. So we'll have a climactic goodbye and th- this week, and then a really anticlimactic what next week. <laughs> All right. So you're still here, huh? All right. Uh, but her husband is a c- CPA-turned-FBI agent. <laughs> And Robin's a school teacher. I want to ask her to come on up and uh, just say goodbye to us. So,
2: so um, my husband, Jeff, and I, we started coming here six years ago, and we lived walking distance uh, in an apartment just up the street, and we happened upon this church because it was so close. Um, we met Chris Campbell and immediately got plugged into a small group. Um, and... It's hard to kind of sum up the last six years uh, in a way that won't make me ugly cry in front of all of you right now. <laughs> but um, it's been such a gift to be a part of this family, and I keep coming back to all the meals that we've had with people, um, especially in the last five months as I've been by myself and Jeff's been on the East Coast. Um, many of you have invited me in and fed me, which as a single woman whose husband does most of the cooking, that's been a humongous <laughs> blessing. So. Um, if I phrase it more as a, a see you later, I'm gonna get through this a lot better. But um, thank you everybody for all the love that you've shown um, Jeff and I over the last six years. And this church has left a very big shoes to fill as we uh, transition on to finding a church in Albuquerque. So um, I'll be here one more week. I'm the person that has like 80 goodbye parties and never actually leaves. But um, <laughs> uh, October 13th is our, is our move date, so. Um, yeah, a lot of uh, excitement about that, but definitely going to miss uh, this church and this community. So, thanks for everything.
0: She's quite tall. <laughs> well, again, uh, my name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in a series called the Son of God, and we're looking at the book of John, trying to understand really who Jesus is. And if we understand who Jesus is, we really understand God because the Bible teaches that he is the fullness of all that God is. There's no Old Testament God and then a New Testament Jesus, but all of that progressive revelation is culminating in the final and total revelation of who God is in the Son that's Jesus Christ. So, and that's important to say, because these last two chapters, last week and this week, it's really emphasizing God's response to sin, the way he sees it and understands it. And it's so radically different than how we think about it. And we can't say, well, that's just sort of Jesus' soft way of thinking about sin. But there really is sort of this more wrathful, uh, vindictive God. That's also true. And John would say, that's actually quite untrue. This is how God the Father views sin, the way Jesus the Son views sin. This is what makes us Christ followers. We're not choosing Jesus over God the Father. We're saying, in Jesus is the fullness of deity. Those are John's words, not mine. Last week, we saw this response uh, of Jesus to this woman who was the prototypical quote-unquote sinner, his response was radical. It was unexpected, and it was very threatening. And uh, uh, you know, the religious leaders they really liked people sinning because it gave them power. And the more others around them sinned, the more leverage they had. The more it, the more assured up their position in society and in politics. And so Jesus comes and he gives away power. And what power he has, he uses to help the powerless. That was not their way of being. And so they felt very threatened by that. And today, chapter 9, we continue to understand better today what God thinks of as the sin that really is underneath all sin. Some theologians have surmised that maybe the sin that's beneath all sin is pride. And I think today we can kind of see that a little bit. I'm not sure it can be summed up in one word. But there is a way that God views sin and what sin is. And it's very different than how we think about sin and how religion has come to think about sin up to to, uh, this moment. And so I have been praying this week that we would have fresh years to see with God what sin is, and to work with God in how to deal with sin. The fact that the Bible is very nuanced and surprising in how he thinks about sin is really comforting to me because sin is an active struggle in my life. And professionally, I work with people who are actively struggling with sin as well. So I know it's a universal No holds barred, no exceptions made endeavor that we engage in every day. I know that sin is complex. And it's never simple because if you dig deep enough, you discover, uncover multiple vectors, forces pulling every which way. And it's generations old. There's layers and layers of complexity and nuance to sin. You can never say, I understand why that person is that way. You don't. You maybe understand a little glimmer of it, but there's so much more that meets the eye, especially the human eye. And then on top of all of that, our response to how to fix sin are also problematic. Our responses to deal with sin are sinful even more. And so we are pretty much trapped in this concept that the Bible calls sin. The Bible deals with sin, with wisdom, with patience, mercifully, justly, and, it's always, and it always has the person in mind. The mercy and or justice that God employs in dealing with sin, it's never about something other than the person. God's ultimate goal is to redeem us. Eyes on the prize, and we are his prize, and that's a really comforting thought to me. I'm gonna give you the sermon right now in this one sentence. Sin, sin is us being in active denial about sin. That's really the sin underneath sin. The initial first sin that can be dealt with, that's not a problem. But the real problem starts when we lose our ability, when we lack the desire, when we woefully say, I don't sin. I have not sinned. I can see. I am not blind. And that's what we learned today. That we are blind. That part is fine. That can be dealt with. But when, but when we deny our blindness and claim we can see, now we have a problem. And this is what God calls Sin. And this is so important for me to say because we are an evangelical church. Part of what that means is we believe the Bible to be words of God. Right? But we as evangelicals over the years have come to believe that perfection is what God is looking for. That somehow we have to be good enough. And what the Bible teaches is nobody is good enough. And what God is really looking for are broken and contrite spirits. Confessional people, people who will say with him that we cannot see. And the Bible says, once, the moment you admit that you are blind, finally, you're beginning to see. This is the teaching of scripture. So the goal isn't perfection, it's confession. The goal isn't greatness, but humility. Humility. The goal is confidence, not in ourselves, but in somebody else to come and carry us all the way home. And I know this sounds simple when I say it, but this is the daily struggle for myself and all the people I've ever worked with as a pastor. Underneath our struggles is this assumption we carry, we labor under that somehow we have to be good. Bible never says that it says admit you are not good and we're already home so let's get into it I want to start with Matthew 13 here because I want to give you the a little sort of broad view of the Bible's understanding of sin and how we are saved according to God Jesus presented, this is 13, 24 to 30. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, "'The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man "'who sowed good seed in his field. "'But while his men were sleeping, "'his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat "'and went away. "'But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, "'then the tares became evident also. "'The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, "'Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? "'How then does it have tares?' And he said to them, an enemy has done this. A slave said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? Now this is where the twist is. But he said, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of that harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. What's the meaning of this parable? It conveys this really, I think, powerful thread in the way that God deals with us. And that thread is patience and perspective, wisdom and care. Don't you know that God is working on you, but never all at once? He's always waiting for the perfect time. Just when you have the ears to hear, right when you are ready. As the Holy Spirit's been working in your life and convicting you and opening your eyes, God comes and says, Now is the time. Because He doesn't want to destroy the wheat along with the tares. So He allows things to sort of propagate in our life, even if they're not so good. He allows things to propagate in the world, even if they're not so good, because He's patient. And his perspective. He will work all things out for the good is the testimony of Scripture. But in his time. And so there's a tenderness and a wisdom that comes through in parables like this. Now, now um, I don't think I've ever really gone into this at this church. But this is something that's been feeding me my whole Christian life. I stumbled upon this a little bit ago. I mean, when I had just become a Christian uh, years ago, and uh, it's really helpful. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. This is not... A, uh, a thought about our ability to endure temptation or trials. This is not some um, sort of uh, cheesy way or simple, overly simplified way where nothing in life, you know, kind of a truism where uh, you won't ever have anything you can't handle in your life because God will shield you from it. That's not true at all. How then do you interpret this? What what does Paul mean when he says, with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape also? Is God just going to be sort of magical about this? Put this perfect hedge of protection around us at all times? Well, Paul, the same author who wrote this verse, also wrote 2 Corinthians, and I think he got a little wiser by 2 Corinthians He says this, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. Listen to this. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. Now, go back to this first one. How will God provide a way of escape? What's the way of escape? For every trial, the word temptation here, it's the word trial. They're used interchangeably in, the, uh, in these two verse, sets of verses. It's not because you're competent enough. It's not because God's going to sort of treat you uh, with kid gloves and put this hedge around you, this perfect filter. No, he's going to be there with you when life throws, when life throws its worst at you. And what comes at you at times are going to be well above and beyond your strength. Even to the point of death, it will be. You will not be shielded from what life has for you. However, it is by God's strength that you will be able to overcome it. Not by your own. So this is the way God understands sin. That we can't overcome it. We can't fight the trials on our own. But God himself, who is able to raise the dead, will deliver us. That doesn't mean he will spare us from death. But he will spare us even from death through death. Through resurrection. So you will suffer and you will die. But God will not forsake you. So that's the way, I think that's sort of the more fuller way of thinking about trials and temptations and sin. And I love that it's ultimately always God who saves. Two points today non binary and non blind. Verse 1, starting with verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. The thing I want you to notice here is how these religious leaders frame up the question. The question the question reveals way more than the answer, don't you think? They have this binary thinking. Well, here's this man who was born blind. Two possibilities that could explain why this man is born blind. Either he sinned or his parents sinned. Whose fault was it? That's all they know how to think. Because underneath that thinking is the assumption That some people don't sin, namely themselves. They believe that they can be good enough, that somehow they can accomplish works that they can present to God as a ticket. I qualify. That's how we are. This kind of binary way of looking at things is either or. You know, a uh, modern-day vernacular for this is we, blame the, we like to blame the victim, don't we? It's a really common thing. It's kind of a self-defense mechanism that we deploy. When somebody gets hurt, we want to know, what did they do wrong? How did they provoke it? What did they say? What did they not do? What were they not aware of or cautious about? It's got to be their fault somehow, and we do that because if we can find out whether it was them or their parents or their friends or what, then maybe we can stay, stay clear of it. Maybe there's a formula to this after all. Maybe we have some semblance of control. Me or them? We got to go on a witch hunt. We reflexively think in terms of fault and blame, good and bad. Jesus doesn't answer within their framework. Do you see that? It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. He's out of their framework now. And then completely out of nowhere, a thought they did not have. These professional religious people completely didn't think about God. But it was so that the works of God, wait, who? The works of God might be displayed in him. Oh, wait, you mean this whole life thing is about God and not me? It's not about me being pristine, but it's about God being lifted up? That's what religion is about? Yeah, it was never about you. Jesus doesn't have a personal need to deflect or condemn or justify or rationalize or avoid or defend. He is freed up to see things as they are. And then he also sees beyond that to as things are supposed to be and he works towards that. He doesn't care about whose fault it is. He's going to absorb it anyways. He's taking it all on. Whose fault it is specifically, minor detail. Who cares? I have a really humiliating story. Um, I have lots of stories where I see how different God is than me. This is one of them, but this is ugly. This is not from, like, last year. This is from last week. This is current Peter. Like, I'm not in my final form yet. I have given this speech to my kids because I love drinks. Like, I love beverages more than food. And so I stock up on Amazon, subscribe and save to drinks like this. And, uh, yeah, there was about this much of a drink left uh, in the recycling bin. And I had given the kids a whole speech about the environment, about not wasting how these drinks are more expensive, but it's convenient. It tastes fresher when you just sort of pop it open. Isn't there satisfaction in that? It feels so good when you have a drink in your hand, a bottled one. You know, so uh, I, I sort of uh, put value on this thing. But after I had given my speech and after they had all nodded in agreement that I was 100% correct and righteous in my thinking... I open up the recycling bin and I find this nonsense in there. Can you believe this? Not this specific one. It was another one. They continue to sin apparently. Um, So I open it up and what's my reaction? Witch hunt. I have the first order of business is who did this? That has to be established. Like life has to stop right now. Until that answer comes to me. There's no other way. Whose phone is that? (laughs) So I call out all the kids. They're all in front of me. Shake it in their boots. No, they're not afraid of me at all. And I said, whose is this? I pulled it out and uh, I put it in front of one of them whom I suspected. And I said, it's still good. It's been sealed. So I'd like you to finish it. It's from the morning it was the evening. Right? So she drank it and then she said, "But dad, after breakfast I was leaving for school. You grabbed it before I was done and you put it in the recycling bin." <laughs> and then I remembered. <laughs> and then the other three kids all piled on me. <laughs> "Your fault. It was you." You're the criminal, not us. This one is 100% on you. Now the point of the story is not that I'm a bad guy. The point of the story is we are all bad. I blame them, they blame me right back. It is a wonderful family culture I've created for for us. I'm a really good dad, really. That's my framework. That's the only way I know how to think. Because I have to protect myself. I have to control my world. Don't I? And that's my version, but you got a version. But non blind, non blind. Verse 25b, we're getting specific here. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. And then verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world. Now, what's this judgment? Because the New Testament uses words like this, and we have to really kind of understand it competently, and we're going to misuse it. We're going to apply this in the wrong way to who God is. So listen, for judgment, I came into this world so that those who do not see may see. Now, check this out. When God judges us, the blind see. And the sick are healed, and the lame walk, and the dead are raised to life. This is the healing effect of judgment when God does it. When I judge, people die. People are condemned, demeaned, belittled. But when Jesus judges, what happens? So that those who do not see may see. That's amazing. When God judges, we heal. Remember that. Next time a non-Christian says, but don't you believe in a judgmental God? You say, thank God I do. Because when he judges, I'm healed. You want God judging you. You need God to judge you. Judgment by God is life unless, of course, you belong in the second category, and that those who see may become blind. That's not Jesus being paradoxical or contradicting. It's a way of saying this. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, and this is the key Key sentence here, if you were blind, or rather if you knew you were blind, if you confessed you were blind, if you admitted you were blind, you would have no sin. Think about that. Why would they have no sin if they admitted they were sinful? Because as soon as you admitted, God's judgment takes care of it because God's judgment was what? Poured out on Christ for the healing of the nations, scriptures teach us. So if you admit that you are sinful, you're all good. Jesus covers you. But since you say we see, your sin remains. If you are in active rebellion or denial about your sinfulness and your need for a Savior outside of yourself, that is the sin that keeps you outside of the much needed judgment of God that can heal you. In contrast, look at uh, Jesus, Luke 23 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Jesus is forgiving people to the fullest extent possible while dying on the cross. He's forgiving those who have put him up there and now are mocking him by selling off his clothes. He's naked and they have extra clothes. And he's forgiving them. This is the judgment of God. This is what's offered to us in God's judgment. Jesus, naked, stripped, humiliated, abandoned, tortured on a cross. To symbolize the spiritual and physical death that is our destiny, save for the work on the cross. Psalm 139, 23 says this, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. If there See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the prayer we have to pray. God, is there some blindness I'm in denial about? Is there some blindness I'm actively fighting you on? Is there a way I need to have my eyes opened? Because as soon as I can see with you, I will say with you. The word confess just means to say with. Con means with. Fest means to say. To with say. To say with God. So To confess your sin means to simply name the reality that God sees about you. God, I do need help. God, I am blind. That's it. And once you say it, You are under the judgment that saves you and heals you. Application is really simple in this case. Uh, One, just confess your binary way of thinking. Say, God, I'm just a binary thinker. I just think it's either my fault or their fault. Those are the only two options my brain can come up with. Forgive me for that. I totally forgot about the fact that it's about your glory. Like Nikki shared, whether my life is going great or not, that's irrelevant relative to God being exalted. Thankfully, God doesn't lose sight of me, and he's, his commitment is to redeem me. So that's application one. And then application two is Psalm 139. Just search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me so that you can lead me in the way everlasting. Let's close with this. This is from 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through 9. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all sin unrighteousness and the unrighteousness that john is referring to here is the sin the unrighteousness of not confessing it's not about perfection or imperfection it's about confession and by god's grace along with me may we may all of us be able to say and now i see would you bow your heads with me God, we thank you for your judgment which seeks to save us or to condemn us if we refuse to confess. So God, search our hearts, know our anxious thoughts, know the fearful places from which we come and lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.